0: Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri. The Mistaken Identity Murder, Virgil Romine, 1929. The air was crisp and cold. Temperatures in the 40s that Sunday evening, January sixth, 1929 in Herculaneum, Missouri. Around 10 o'clock p.m., Lorenzo Jones, A soft-drink retailer was at home, getting ready for bed when he was startled by the sound of gunfire coming from nearby. The shots were quickly followed by the squeal of tires and crunch of flying gravel. Peering out the window, he determined the noise had come from the artesian restaurant, which sat on Highway 61, where his friend Virgil Romine should be cleaning up to close calling out to his wife he ran out of the door toward the building upon entering jones found the restaurant to be eerily quiet scanning the room he spotted 42 year old virgil romine huddled in a chair in the corner bleeding profusely there were three bullets in his abdomen other neighbors who had heard the commotion quickly arrived What happened here, Virgil? Jones asked. It was those fellows who slugged the slot machine a couple of weeks ago, Virgil gasped, to rob me. Lorenzo hurried over to help his friend. Do you know their names, he asked. No, but they stay out at Old Lady Vineyard's place, I think. Their conversation was interrupted as other neighbors who had heard the commotion tried to help. Romine was taken to St. Anthony's Hospital on Tesson Ferry Road, about 20 miles north of Herculaneum, where he died as a result of the blood loss. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of the Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri series. I am your host, Mindy Hudson, genealogist at the Jefferson County Library. Each week we bring you stories of murder and scandal that have occurred throughout the county's 200-year history. Jefferson County is located about 25 miles south of St. Louis in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. Herculaneum, Missouri lies just west of the mighty Mississippi River along the limestone bluffs that reminded town founders Moses Austin and Samuel Hammond, of the landscape of Herculaneum in Italy. Moses Austin, father of the well-known Stephen F. Austin of Texas, was considered the lead king of the Missouri Lead Belt. Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Hammond was a well-respected revolutionary patriot who became involved in land speculation, lead mining, and banking. He and Austin teamed together to create a river depot for shipping the lead they produced from a port along the Mississippi River in 1808 and established the town of Herculaneum, Missouri. Herculaneum served as the original seat of county government in Jefferson County until it was moved in 1839 to Hillsboro, a more centrally located site. In 1887, the St. Joe Lead Company, based in New York, chose Herculaneum as a lead-smelting site. The Mississippi River and Terre Railroad, which intersected with the Iron Mountain Railroad, began construction soon after. With the establishment of the smelter, a bustling community began to grow, bringing other businesses to the heart of the town. By the time automobiles became commonplace, some businesses added filling stations to their grocery stores or restaurants. This was true of the artesian restaurant. Travelers would stop for gas and come in to get a bite to eat before continuing their long journey to St. Louis or south toward St. Genevieve. Trouble was, in the rural towns, it also made these establishments prime targets for thieves who could make a quick getaway and disappear before authorities could track them. Immediately after the shooting in Herculaneum, an investigation was launched to try to determine who the young men were Romine had identified. About two weeks before, some boys had shown up at the restaurant to play the slot machine. They had used fake coins, called slugs, to win some money, about 75 cents. Virgil had made them leave, which they did, but they left a Ford car belonging to a friend in the back lot of the business. Virgil tracked down the owner and told him he had hold the car until the boys returned the money they had won by cheating. The following day, they did return the money, but had threatened Mr. Romine. As word spread about the murder on Monday, John Bessler, a coroner and undertaker from St. Genevieve, heard about it and contacted the sheriff. He and a colleague had stopped at the artesian the night of the murder and remembered seeing four young people at the restaurant. They appeared to all be male, but Bessler suspected one was a female dressed like a male. With that bit of information, law enforcement detective Walter Cliff began a search along the highway for any clues. Not far from the restaurant, Cliff found a bloodied, bullet-torn sweater, a shirt with a hole matching the sweater hole, and a pair of partially burned overalls, which gave credibility to the theory that one of the suspects had been a female in disguise. About 3 a.m. Tuesday morning, Jefferson County Deputy Sheriff John Officer showed up at Martha Vineyard's home, a boarding house a little east of Herculaneum. Outside, they found a young woman and an admirer parked in a car. Thinking they fit the description of two of the suspects, they felt they had indeed found the murderers. Two other suspects, Alvin Craig and Walter Hess, Both, about 19 years old, were sleeping upstairs. When questioned about the incident with the slugs, both Hess and Craig admitted they had been confronted by Mr. Romine about the incident, but they had returned the money. Upon hearing this confession, their fate was sealed. All four were arrested on murder charges, with all of the suspects insisting they were not guilty of murder. When Bessler and his companion failed to identify the young man and woman, they were released. But Bessler thought Craig and Hess looked like the two other suspects they'd seen that night. Although the eyewitnesses were unsure about the boys, the deathbed statement of Virgil Romine overruled the protestations of Craig and Hess, that they had been nowhere near the restaurant, the night of the shooting, but had been at the home of a friend. The body of Virgil Romine was taken to the home of his sister, Mrs. John Copeland, in Victoria, Missouri, where a funeral was held at the Victoria Church on Wednesday afternoon. He left behind an ex-wife and two teenage children. He was buried in Bonterre Cemetery, St. Francis County, Missouri. The trial of Alvin Craig and Walter Hess was presented before Judge Ferguson in June 1929. The defendants were found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in the state penitentiary. Alvin's parents were able to post a $5,000 bond for him, and he was granted leave awaiting his appeal. Walter's situation was much more grave. His father had died of prostate cancer a month before the trial. His mother, grieving her husband and the hopeless situation of her son, was too poor to post bond. Walter would have to serve his full sentence. It would seem that would be the end of the Virgil Robine murder story, but it wasn't. During the trial, St. Louis Central District Detective Walter Cliff had a nagging feeling that something wasn't right about the Craig Hess case. The entire case was tried and convicted on circumstantial evidence. Years later, Cliff said, I remember telling Detective Brown at the time, I don't think the kid is guilty, and I hope someday I can prove it. As things turned out, the year after Walter Hess went to prison, Soulard patrolman Eugene Janelle was walking a beat near Broadway in Carroll Streets in St. Louis when he heard shooting. He traced it to 1504 South Broadway, where he found Mrs. Lena Parrott, who told him a man had just tried to commit suicide on the second floor. At that moment, she pointed across the street and exclaimed, There he goes! The officer was able to apprehend Otto Colbert, who tried to draw a revolver before he was overpowered and arrested. All other persons at the property were also taken into custody, including Mrs. Parrott, her husband Albert, and her cousin Louis Taylor. Taken before Captain Patrick Kirk, it was discovered that Colbert and Parrott had been running a burglary ring with a third accomplice. When Taylor was questioned, he insisted he was an innocent man. I'm an honest man, he said. You couldn't make me do wrong. Colbert scoffed. Hang on to him, Captain. He's worse than I am, and I've done time. Turns out... Taylor had been a getaway driver for several of the gang's robberies. When Detective Walter Cliff questioned Colbert on the burglary charge, the ex-con knew he was facing jail time and asked if there was anything he could do to avoid that. Cliff told him that might be possible if he could give them a tip on a bigger crime. How would a murder do, the man offered. A murder? would do just fine, said Cliff. With the plea deal in the works, the ex-con told the detective about a man who was a rumor in the same house with him. This guy was a former soldier's tailor, 22, who had bragged that he had taken part in a robbery and shooting a year ago in a small town outside of St. Louis. He couldn't remember the name of the town, but Cliff offered several choices. Festus, Hillsborough, Herculaneum, upon which the man replied, quote, Yes, Herculaneum, that's it, end quote. Teasing apart the details on the robbery and murder, Cliff discovered the names of the others involved in the Herculaneum holdup. Guilford Browning, 25, Joe Muleman, and Taylor's former girlfriend, Mamie Babe Woolham, 24, were named. Including Mamie in the roster of the artesian restaurant incident was Taylor's biggest downfall. Apparently, their relationship had ended on a very sour note, and she was only too willing to spill the beans on her former lover. In fact, she stated that Taylor had been the shooter that night. When Taylor was questioned about the incident, he admitted that he did indeed shoot Romine, who had managed to pull out a firearm and hit him in the arm and finger, causing Cliff to recall the bloody bullet holes in the shirts he had found. Taylor's confession was published in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on January thirtieth, 1930. It read, quote, We met at 4th and Sear Street, and drove down Highway 61 to the restaurant at Herculaneum, where we ordered sandwiches. There were two well-dressed men in the place. The proprietor told me they were undertakers from St. Louis, and he said they were the last persons he wanted to come into his house. They left. We finished our sandwiches, and Babe ordered another hamburger. That was the cue to start to hold up the man. When the proprietor went into the kitchen, I followed him. Babe had given me a gun on the way down. We were to loot the cash register and take slot machines off a counter. I told him, Romine, to put up his hands and put them up halfway. He was nervous. He kept his left hand up and started to put his right hand into his pocket. I told him not to do that as I didn't want to hurt him. He pulled his pocketbook out and threw it in my face. He then reached on a shelf over a stove and got a gun and shot me in the finger. I tried to get hold of him, and as I did, he shot me in the abdomen. Then I shot him. I ran to the car, and we started back to St. Louis. We did not take his money or bother anything." End quote. Mamie Wollum's statement elaborated on how she treated Taylor's superficial wounds with hydrogen peroxide, since he didn't want to have to explain the gunshot wounds to his commanding officers on his return to Jefferson Barracks, where he was a private in Company G. He was on leave of absence at the time of the holdup. Marine Catherine, or Mamie Wollum, also known as Babe, was a very attractive woman with black hair, gray-blue eyes, and a sallow complexion. She married Louis Ostricker in St. Francis County in 1916 at the age of 13 and had two sons, Jesse and Floyd. Louis was about 26 at the time of their marriage, and it did not last In 1921 she married Frank Anderson in Iron County with whom she had a daughter named Bonnie. Having been married so young it is no mystery why she left both marriages and the children behind to pursue a more exciting life in St. Louis. She found it in Lewis Taylor, a soldier stationed at Jefferson Barracks who had a penchant for living life as a bad boy. Interestingly, in June 1921, Mamie's first husband, Louis Ostricker, was shot in the head trying to stop a robbery by three men who were robbing Nays Brothers' garage in Kimswick. Remarkably, the bullet which entered under his left eye and emerging from behind his ear did not penetrate his brain. He went on to remarry and have other children. Lewis Taylor, the true murderer, had participated in a few robberies as the driver prior to the night of January 7, 1929. This time, there were four of them. Taylor and his girlfriend, Babe, donned overalls on top of their regular clothes. She pulled a cap on her head to disguise herself. Once the robbery got underway, the accomplices got into position Muleman started the car while Babe and Browning kept a watch for witnesses. Taylor was surprised by the move on Romine's part in grabbing the gun. Romine got two shots off, striking Taylor in the hand and abdomen, which made the others scattered. Taylor returned fire, striking Romine three times in the abdomen. Muleman later testified that upon reaching the getaway car, Taylor remarked, I think I shot that guy good. It's a wonder he didn't kill me. As a result of the confessions, Walter Hess, who'd served a year for a crime he didn't commit, was freed by the governor. Taylor and Woolham received life sentences, and the others drew 10-year sentences. Mamie received a parole from Governor Lloyd Stark in 1940. Taylor was paroled August 1944 and received a final discharge July 1949. Walter Hess moved back to Herculaneum and married Bertha MacDonald in November 1933. They had one daughter. Unfortunately, five years after his release, Walter developed tonsillitis, which became septic, and he died April 19, 1935. Alvin Craig, the other youth who had been wrongfully convicted, immediately signed up to serve in the National Guard after his pardon. In 1935, he married Lucinda Carpenter. No children were born to the Union. Craig died in 1968. Throughout the years Mamie served at the state penitentiary, her sons were raised by her parents and then by her sister Stella, After her release from prison, she married a man by the name of Gardner. She reconnected with her sons, who were married and had children by that time. Her daughter, Bonnie, moved to California by 1945. She married twice and had eight children between the two marriages. It is unknown whether she ever had contact with her mother. She passed away in 2006 in Washington State. Tragedy continued to follow Mamie, even after her release from prison. In July 1955, her son, Floyd Ostricker, 36, was found bludgeoned to death in the trunk of his car off New Baumgardner Road, about a mile and a half east of Highway 6167. Ostricker was a truck driver for the Lew King Transfer Company in St. Louis. On Tuesday evening, July 12th, Ostricker left home telling his wife he was going to an auto body shop in St. Louis where he had a side job overhauling vehicles for resale. He was survived by a wife and three children, ranging in age from three to seven years. He also had a daughter from a previous marriage who was 13 years old. His murder was the third in similar incidents of a body found in the trunk of a vehicle in the St. Louis area in 1955. There were speculations these were mafia-related murders tied to gambling, but no evidence was produced to prove those allegations, and no sp- suspects were ever arrested. Mamie's eldest son, Jesse O. Stricker, married twice and had seven children. He served in World War II and later worked as a paper hanger and then a truck driver. His family was also devastated by tragedy when, in November 1982, his son, Jerry Lee Ostricker, grandson to Mamie, was shot to death at a country club in Hollywood Beach Road in Arnold by James W. Chambers. There were conflicting accounts of what led to the shooting but Chambers, who was no stranger to violent behavior, challenged Ostricker to a fight outside the establishment. Chambers surprised Ostricker by firing a thirty-eight caliber revolver into his chest and then pistol-whipping him once he was on the ground. Chambers received the death penalty for the crime and was executed in November 2000. Mamie Wollum Gardner died February 24th 1989. Her son, Jesse Ostricker, a respected member of the Arnold community, passed away in March 2003. Lewis Taylor died in November 1987 and is buried at Jefferson Barracks. Guilford Browning lived out his life in St. Clair County, Illinois. He married when he was 41 and passed away at the age of 70 in February 1987. Joseph Muleman died in St. Louis in 1983 at the age of 74. As for the surviving children of Virgil Romine, after losing their father in a senseless murder in 1929, they lost their mother Alice in 1942 to pneumonia. They married and had children, making their home in a neighboring county The daughter passed away in 1991 and the son died in 2001. In the 1990s, environmental concerns over the levels of lead contamination from the Doe Run smelter led to the eventual buyout of the Central Historic District of Herculaneum. In 2001, the company bought out the homes and businesses near the areas with high levels of lead traces and eventually destroyed the homes and buildings, leaving the once bustling area a ghost town. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri, brought to you by the Jefferson County Library Genealogy Department located at the Northwest Branch. 5680 Highway PP, High Ridge, Missouri. Be sure to join us next Tuesday at 5 o'clock p.m. for the premiere of The Great Festus Bank Heist, 1926. Check out the earlier podcasts on your favorite venue and be sure to visit the Jefferson County Library genealogy page at facebook.com backslash jclgenealogy for photographs and information regarding this and other podcasts.